invite you to turn in your Bibles to Titus chapter 3, the book of Titus chapter 3, and we'll be in verses 1 through 8, Titus 3, verses 1 through 8 tonight. just want to thank Mason and the team for always faithfully leading us in song and in worship to our God. Just such sweet times of being together and lifting our voices to the Lord. Let's turn our attention to God's word. Titus 3, 1 to 8. The word of God says, Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. Speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become Ears, according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. God, as we approach your word, would your spirit work in our hearts and in our minds, open our eyes to what you would have for us in your word, in your son's name, amen. I wonder if you've ever been to to Gilroy. If you're from Northern California, you probably have. If you're driving up the 101 or the other freeway that juts across, you'd know it if you're in Gilroy. You'd know you're in Gilroy because you smell it. Garlic. Not Dodger Stadium garlic fries garlic, but garlic. Gilroy is home to the annual Gilroy Garlic Festival. It's the hometown of everybody's favorite garlic ice cream. And it's called the garlic capital of the world. It's in the air you breathe when you're in Gilroy. Even with the windows rolled all the way up and the vents closed, you know you're in Gilroy because you can smell it. Matthew chapter 5, thankfully, gives us a less olfactory, offensive ingredient to work with. But Jesus says to us there, and you know this passage, you are the salt of the earth. 
But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Jesus is saying in Matthew 5, you are the salt of the earth. That is, if you know Jesus, your taste, your flavor, even a little of your smell of your life is obvious to those around you. The joy you have, the gratitude you express for life's blessings, the way you speak, the way you don't speak when you know you're not supposed to. You live a life of gospel witness, Jesus says. You show that you know Jesus. And Jesus is saying, don't lose your flavor. Don't use your, don't lose your gospel usefulness. Live, Jesus is saying, before the eyes of a watching world as a testimony of gospel transformation. And so as we interact with unbelievers around us at school, at work, our neighbors, Paul says here in Titus, also we should be a gospel witness. We should should be of gospel flavor to a watching world. Hey, Grace, on campus, we live in a culture that can be so hostile toward our faith. It can be difficult then to know what a gospel witness looks like. Because for some, being a gospel witness in the name of taking a stand, being the salt of the earth is literally being salty. Decrying with great distaste the evils of society. And the wrongs of every vain philosophy they read about on the internet. They lure all their unbelieving friends and family into frequent Facebook feuds. That's what it means to be salt of the earth. Is it? For others, it means posting masked selfies and pictures of blurred out vaccination cards with Bible verses as captions about loving one another and about how for sure that's what Jesus would do too. That's what it means to be salt of the earth. Is it? What does it mean for us to live out a gospel witness in a hostile world? How should we respond in the face of the Cretan culture around us that is so vehemently opposed to everybody who follows Jesus. Well, amidst a self-righteous virtue signaling culture, this passage shows us we don't necessarily need to talk more loudly or astutely or logically than the world. We don't have to have a perfect haircut and be able to vibe crowds of thousands into hearing about Jesus like an evangelist who travels the country. We don't even need a ministry team or a Google spreadsheet to do this kind of effective gospel witness, at least not the kind in this passage. Being a gospel witness, according to Titus chapter 3, is being a humble everyday signpost that points others to Jesus. A humble kingdom representative. One that is captivated by the beauty 
of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. A sound witness is every day. It's unscheduled. It's unprompted gospel-shaped character that exudes warmth and sweetness and humility and thoughtfulness toward the broken image bearers around us. It's Christian goodness and loving kindness that finds its source and strength in the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior toward us in the gospel. And so in tonight's passage, we'll find that kind of gospel witness, and we'll find four steps to cultivating a sound witness, four steps to cultivating a sound witness. First in verses one and two, examine your witness, examine your witness. Paul tells us here in verses one and two, how we must live a gospel witness. And then in the rest of the passage, he shows us how the gospel of grace shapes and motivates that witness. You see, the logic, the order of what Paul is doing here is very similar to chapter two. He gives us the practical instruction first, and then he gives us the gospel foundation or the gospel basis in the following verses. So first, the more practical instruction as we examine our witness. Remind them, Paul says. This represents an ongoing action. Grammatically, it's almost like reminding them. This instruction is to be brought to mind continually. As Titus establishes churches all over the island of Crete, Paul says, remind them of the importance of their gospel witness. In the face of the Cretan culture that's so easy to look down upon, because you used to be like that, Paul says, remind these Cretan Christians to examine their witness. Look at verse 1. Remind them first to be submissive to rulers and authorities and to be obedient. These commands to be submissive and to be obedient are together in the grammar of the sentence even, and they're both in relation to rulers and authorities. This is how the Christian ought to respond in a spirit of gospel witness to rulers and authorities, those in power in government over you. And this covers the scope of governmental powers, whether Caesar or governor or provincial mayor, federal or local, We are to submit, that is, subject oneself. And secondly, we are to obey or follow the authority of, of rule or the rule of law. This is humble submission to those ruling in government over us. Recognizing that these men and women are established by God. They're established by God. Turn over to Romans chapter 13. This is one of the go-to passages as we understand anytime we think about governing authority. Romans 13, starting in verse 1. Let every person be subject, subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from 
God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good and you will receive his approval. In the beginning of verse 4, for he is God's servant for your good. You see, grace on campus, by our heart posture, before human authorities, one of humble submission and obedience, we show the world our recognition that it is God who, Daniel 2.21, changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. And so we recognize the role of these human authorities. And now the obvious and notable exception is Acts 5.29. You've heard a lot in this season, right? We ought to obey God rather than men. And so in a situation where government is telling us to do something that the Bible says not to do, or when government's saying you can't do something that the Bible says you need to do, like preach the gospel, other than that, we are to humbly submit and to obey. Not just if you agree or if he is red or blue or green like you are. Or obey if it's not too horribly inconvenient. The Christian's heart as a matter of gospel witness and a matter of understanding the king over all the universe. God himself is one of submission and obedience to human authorities put in place by the king of all the universe. Paul goes on further to instruct us in our conduct before a watching world. And he begins to broaden the scope here beyond just government. He begins to speak a little bit, a little bit more universally. And he uses the word every good work to speak evil of no one to show perfect courtesy toward all people. So Paul begins to broaden the scope beyond just government. He says, first, we are to be ready for every good work. That is to commit deeds of kindness and love, to be ready to do good to others, to use whatever time and resources God has given us to do good to others. That's why I believe in nursing majors and key club and homeless ministry, because that puts us in a situation where we can do good to others and then tell Jesus about those to, to those same people. And the gospel witness here in this passage spills out into all areas of life, just as it did in chapter two, verses one to 10. And Paul says here, we are to speak evil of no one. So now this gospel witness has to do with our tongue as well. We're not to malign anyone, whether it's the governor that you disagree with or the neighbor who can't seem to turn the music down. We are to speak evil of no one, no exceptions. We are to avoid 
quarreling, Paul says, Paul says here, to avoid bickering or squabbling. It could be over the poker game and someone missed deals or whether he stepped out of bounds, over whether maybe you're being too sensitive or not sensitive enough. It could be in person or on Twitter. Christians are not pugnacious. They're not contentious. We are not argumentative. Because as those who have peace with God, we seek to pursue peace with other image bearers. We're to avoid quarreling. And then in a more positive direction, but in the same arena, Paul says we are to be gentle. Uh, That is considerate or kind or courteous, even tolerant. One Bible commentary says, not insisting on every right of letter of law or custom. Not pushy and not opinionated to a fault, but instead kind and considerate. And then Paul wraps up this instruction here by saying, we are to show perfect courtesy toward all people. This is a thorough, thoughtful consideration of others. This is considering others more important than yourself in every situation. This is, oh, go ahead. Thank you, card writing. Hey, would it be okay if I sort of thinking? It's a humility of heart. It's a mindfulness toward all people. It knows when it's been wronged, but does not hold the wrong against. And it knows when it wrongs someone else and goes to seek apology and initiate reconciliation. This is a lifestyle, this two verses that is cognizant that God has created every single person on this planet in his image to know and to worship him. So this kind of goodness toward others, this loving kindness we ought to display is a reflection of the goodness and loving kindness that God has toward us in the gospel through the work of Christ Jesus. And we live this way, at least in the lens of this passage, so that others might see it and then be attracted to Jesus. And so I ask you tonight, very simply, is your life a sound witness? Is the way that you respond to others, whether government authorities or the people around you, or the neighbor that's a little bit prickly and picky, is the way you live winsome and helpful to the gospel? Or does it detract? Does it distract from the gospel of Jesus Christ? By the way you hold yourself and the way others see you, by the way you interact with the server at Hillel, or your neighbor in 424, or your TA, Can the world tell by being around you that you are a Jesus follower, a Christian, one who has been saved by the redeeming grace of a a good God? Are you salt? 
Or have you lost your usefulness? I challenge you, examine your life through the lens of verses 1 and 2 here and mold your life after what Paul says here is a gospel testimony, a humble, thoughtful, others-minded way of living, one that demonstrates what a redeemed, transformed life looks like. And so first, examine your witness. Number two, we see in verse three, recall your former state. Step two, recall your former state. Look at verse three. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Paul points to our former helpless state before knowing Jesus, who we were before Christ, so as to keep our idea in this passage as a whole of a gospel witness grounded in context so we don't understand and Uh, So we don't forget and that we understand what we were like before Jesus. This will help our gospel witness, Paul thinks. So I want you to think, if you're maybe just started dating, you would not appreciate your dating relationship as much if you did not forget the lonely days. Or the two weeks that she made you wait before she gave you an answer. Thinking on those times before the relationship helps you appreciate it. If you got the hot new Tesla and you somehow tricked your parents into thinking that California law is actually going to pass, you would do well to appreciate that hot new Tesla when you think about the days with the clunker. 1987 Toyota Camry wagon. I don't have a Tesla. You just got the new lab position or you got into the med school you've been dreaming about. As you share with your friends, one of the things you share about is the ways that God has taught you in the time that you had to wait for rolling admissions to actually roll. We would do well to think about the times before we knew Jesus. Because it helps us to respond in gratitude and in worship to a great God who saves only by his grace. There's gratitude or perspective that comes from just pausing and thinking and recalling. So here we must recall our former states. What's also helpful is that this is the current state of the unbelievers around us that we're trying to reach. 1 Corinthians 6.11 says it this way, memorable statement, right? Such were some of you. We ought to think back and recall on our former helpless state. We need to understand that those we reach with our gospel witness right now are in a spiritual state that we also once were. And so Paul describes here those who don't know God. And while this list of things may not precisely describe the lives of every unbeliever, this is the general Pauline sketch of life without Christ. 
It's a taste of the way of the world, of the Cretan culture around us. Paul says here, we were once foolish first, unintelligent, senseless in regards to God's truth. Romans 1 describes it this way, claiming to be wise, they, we became fools. They exchanged the glory of God for idols. You see, before knowing Jesus, we all had no understanding of God or his truth. We were foolish. Paul also says we were disobedient to God ultimately, but in contrast to verses 1 and 2, rebellious and disobedient to any authority, earthly, human, or divine. You see, before knowing Jesus, our authority was ourselves. Paul also says we were led astray. We were deceived by self and by Satan, following the self-deceived path of Romans 1, not seeing fit to acknowledge God. You see, before knowing Jesus, we were what Isaiah 53 describes. All we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. Paul says here also, we were slaves to various passions and pleasures. We were enslaved to whatever the world had to offer. Strong drink, sex, sin, before knowing Jesus, we didn't have self-control. We were under the control of sin. Romans 6 says we were slaves to sin. Paul says here also we were passing our days in both malice and envy. So we were living with an ill will in our hearts toward other people. Compared to the perfect courtesy to all people that Paul calls us to, we lived with this sort of hate toward others, a sort of wickedness of heart that is constantly dissatisfied, comparing our own lives enviously, wanting other people's positions or possessions or power. You see, before knowing Jesus, we were the epitome of the rat race mentality. Paul says finally in this passage that we were hated by others and hating one another. You see, all of these things culminate in a hateful existence driven by worldly passions and self-will and fleshly materialism before knowing Jesus. We loved only ourselves and hated others because they got in the way. This was us before Christ, for we ourselves were once this way. Now, you may sit there and you may think, as we go through this list, it's not me, Matt. I wasn't like that. Not like that, by God's grace. It's just not my testimony. It's not my past. You may have a testimony just like mine. You grew up in the church. You didn't touch a drug besides ibuprofen. 
and just had a half because one was too many for you. You stayed relatively out of trouble, got good grades, of course, and you're generally a very good person, always have been. But you must understand in your former helpless spiritual state that you were dead in your trespasses and sins in what you once walked. You were following the course of this world. You were following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. You were carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. All of us were this way. This spiritual reality, this fallen condition is all of our former life before knowing Jesus. It is true for you, no matter what your testimony is, and for every one of us, as true as it is for us, as it is for the career criminal, the drunkard, the sex addict, or the atheist. But God spared you. Uh, He spared me. He spared us from having to experience a full life of sin. And the full effects of rebellion against him. And so if your testimony is not the one that you hear on Sunday night that makes everybody cry, this is still your former life, your former state before knowing Jesus. It's just that God spared you from that. And so in a sense, we should read a passage like this one with a deep level of gratitude, fully and deeply thankful to God for his transforming work. And though the outward expressions of life may not have had to show full depravity's effect, no matter your story, if you know Jesus, he has completely changed the inward reality of your soul. You have his righteousness not your own. Grace on campus, we also consider our former state because this is life for those around us who don't know God. So when those around us sin or swear or say things like the broken image bearers that they are, we should not respond in a spirit of moral superiority or pompous expectation. Our hearts should not race race to self-righteous judgment. Thinking that somehow those who don't know Jesus should be able to ride at the same level as our moral high horse. Instead, we ought to respond with sympathy and empathy and the compassion of our Lord Jesus with a humble understanding that sinners will sin. And yet the gracious God in his perfect timing and through the gospel witness of humble instruments like us extends his grace toward all. And so sinners will sin, but a gracious God will be gracious. And we should reflect that. 
There is no one beyond the hope of our powerful Savior. The one who brought salvation to all men for those who would believe. And so examine your witness. Recall your former state. And the third step in cultivating a gospel witness is number three, to consider your salvation. Consider your salvation. Against the dark backdrop of mankind's spiritual state without God, the diamond of the gospel shines brightly. This is Titus's version of Ephesians 2.4. But God, look at verses four through seven. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become ears according to the hope of eternal life. This is all one long sentence. It's one long, complex description. And at the heart of this long sentence is the main verb. Welcome to North Campus. The beginning of verse five, he saved us. He saved us. Again, here, just like in chapter two, Paul speaks of the grace of God having appeared, having shown light, having manifested in the person and in the work of Jesus. And this time, Paul highlights not the grace of God, but the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior. Other translations say the kindness and love. The first word, God's goodness or kindness, is God's good will toward mankind. It's a unique term used by Paul in regards to God's charity or generosity toward mankind. And then the second word, love or loving kindness, literally is philanthropia, the word philanthropy. Phileo, anthropos, his love for mankind. And so these two terms capture the grace of God in salvation. They highlight, they underline his goodwill and loving kindness toward undeserving humanity that we just saw in verse 3. This is the paradigm for the good and goodwill and kindness that we are to show other people around us. Verses 1 and 2. This is the paradigm for a gospel witness that we see in God. And so as we cultivate a gospel witness, even tonight, we are a picture of God's goodwill and loving kindness toward us found in the gospel. 
And so in Jesus, the goodness and loving kindness of God appeared in human flesh. By the life and the death and the resurrection of that Jesus, look at verse 5. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. The basis of our salvation, the very foundation of our faith, has never been and will never be our own works. What we do, what we say, what even we sacrifice, it has nothing to do with that. Yet throughout all of human history, man has grasped and groaned at our shortcomings before a holy God, constructing towers and meccas and man-made religions to try to reach God, to try to access him, to try to touch him and taste of the divine, but even our best efforts. Even deeds done by us in righteousness cannot make us right with a holy, righteous, perfect God. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, not even one. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. And how? He appeared. He condescended to us. God became man and lived among us. And he died for us. For being foolish, disobedient, led astray. We deserved wrath, punishment, eternity in hell. Yet according to his own mercy, he took that wrath and put it on Jesus. And he saved us. Look how God does this. Look at the end of verse five. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. You see, God, by his spirit, washes us. He cleanses us. It's what chapter 2, verse 14, to purify was referring to. Turn over to Ezekiel 36. We need to look at this this week. Didn't get a chance last week. Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel 36, verse 25. God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols. I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. This is prophecy of the work that God now does by the power of the Holy Spirit in our salvation. 
You see, through the blood of Jesus, his spirit is given to us and his spirit washes us. And back in Titus here, we see it as two effects. This washing involves both regeneration and renewal. Regeneration. This is spiritual birth. This is being born again. John 3 says this, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. This is a picture of being given life, being brought to life by the Spirit. And this is not something we can do ourselves. Just think of being born. Did you do that to yourself? All God's initiative. All God's work. Secondly, the Spirit also renews us. He changes us internally. If you think about Ezekiel 36, it's the heart of new flesh. Uh, Excuse me, the new heart of flesh. Uh, This is describing at the point of salvation. Because we see all through Romans 8, we see the Spirit's work in our lives and the help in our struggle against sin. Romans 12, we see we are being transformed in an ongoing, continual way throughout our spiritual lives by the renewing of our mind. But here in Titus 3, it's at salvation. It all starts at salvation. God gives us his spirit who here washes us, regenerates us, and renews us, makes us new again. I wonder when the last time you did your laundry is, hopefully recently. If not, do your laundry. Tonight, there's time for you still. We'll talk after the service. When you do your laundry, you take your hamper you've had since freshman year. Looking at you, seniors. You take it across the hall to the laundry room and you do your thing and you conserve soap and you wonder if your roommate took some of it as you kind of think about what it weighed like the last time you did laundry. Oh, and then, oh, you forgot the, the bounce sheet, so you go back and get that, but then you remember, like, they're still washing, so you got time. It's like you're doing it for the first time, right? Finish the whole thing, drying two, and you come back to the laundry room with what in your hands? The hamper. Is it just me, or do you think about the fact that your dirty laundry came in that same hamper and we're about to just kind of put the same laundry now clean back into into the hamper? Just saying. (laughs) Just saying. When God's spirit does a regenerating and a renewing work in our lives, he's not just doing laundry for us. He's not just giving us clean clothes. He's not just doing the chore of cleaning up our lives for us. But I think that's how we think about it when we confess our sins to a God who is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. 
I think when we take communion, we kind of think, yeah, it's going back into the hamper. The Spirit's regenerating and renewing work in the life of the Christian is that of giving the robes that we never had of the righteousness of Christ. And not putting it into that old hamper of a heart, but giving us, Ezekiel 36, a new heart of flesh. One that beats for and loves Jesus for his redeeming work. God did this work. He saved us by his spirit. It's an amazing work. New robes of righteousness, but also a new heart. Praise God. God did this by his spirit. And look at verse 6. Whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. All of this is enacted by, made possible through made a reality by the atoning work of Jesus Christ, our Savior, for all our sin. It is only by Jesus' work on the cross that all of this is possible. And it is because of the perfect sacrifice of Jesus that we can be regenerated and renewed. Finally, look at the effect of God's work in our lives. Verse 7, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. God, through the finished work of Jesus, by the washing of the Spirit, justified us by His grace. He declared us righteous. He made us right with Him. Enemies of God, given peace with God. But in this passage, He made us heirs. He made us sons and daughters whose inheritance, whose right it is to claim out of nowhere, the hope of eternal life. What a beautiful picture in verse 7 of God making us his own, justifying us and giving us the hope of eternal life. Nothing we deserved. That which God promised before the ages began in chapter 1 verse 2. Now given to us as his children through the finished work of Jesus and the washing of the Spirit. What salvation we have. He saved us, not because of works, but because of his mercy. And so as we consider how to cultivate a gospel witness to those around us, we should examine our witness. And we should recall our former state. But oh, how great it is to consider our salvation. The amazing work that Jesus has done and that God has worked through his spirit. If you don't know Jesus, if we as a group here consider our salvation and you sit there and you think, I don't have that, I don't think. God has you here tonight to even hear the truth of his saving gospel. You heard it from the first preacher, Daniel. 
And you heard what David wants to do with his life. And why? Because we've been saved by God, by his grace and his mercy. He saved us. And so don't leave tonight if you don't know Jesus without talking with somebody around you. Ask them about the hope that they have in God. Finally, number four here, the fourth step to cultivating a gospel witness is to realize your impact. Verse eight, realize your impact. The saying is trustworthy, Paul says, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Here we see we must realize that how we live is a gospel witness that God can and will use mightily. I had a boss one time. She, when I first met her, did not know Jesus. Worked with her for three years. During that time, I never got a chance to share the gospel with her. But I would pray that the way that I worked and the way that I lived and the way that I shared about my church every now and then, and even just the way I prayed before I ate lunch on my break, that somehow she and the 12 other people around me would see Jesus. It's been years, but, you know, you do the find your old boss on Facebook thing and we're friends and she knows Jesus now. Now, I don't think it's because of what I've done. I know the hero in the story is Jesus for his saving work. But you don't know whether the way that you pray before lunch or the fact that you just kind of talk a certain way or you say that you're thankful for things, how that could be a testimony or the seed that someone later will water and that God will grow into a life that knows the gospel and that knows Jesus savingly. We see in this passage that our gospel witness can be of great impact. Paul says here, the saying is trustworthy. Everything in these past few verses, Paul is saying, is dependable. It's a value statement. It's a faithful word. These verses may have even been a hymn or a catechism for the early church. Paul is saying this is truth that accords with our faith. And Paul says to Titus, insist on these things. Not just the gospel presentation in verses 4 to 7, but Paul says, Titus, insist on these things. That those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. And so again, with authority as he has throughout this letter, Paul urges us toward gospel obedience, reminding us of the importance of our gospel witness and urging us to devote ourselves then to good works. 
our good works, our submission and obedience to government, our readiness to do good to others, our peaceable nature, our gentleness, our perfect courtesy toward all are excellent and profitable for people. Our good works benefit society, promote good. Our good works are oil to the machine that is God's world. Christians should make the world a better place. But these good works are excellent and profitable for people in a way far more excellent and profitable than anything else or in any other way. We begin in Matthew 5 and that passage goes on. Jesus says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Unbelievers around us should see our lives, a gospel witness, lives that day in and day out shine gospel light. Our prayer tonight, GOC, as we think about this next season of a return to campus, new classes and new workplaces, new labs, for some of you, new grad schools and a new city with a new Chipotle and a new grocery store and new new neighborhood. Or maybe it's for you this next season, the same old friends and the same neighbors and the same cohort. Would our good works point others to a Savior? Would people see our lives and would we be bold to share Jesus with our words? This is the most excellent and profitable thing we can offer. Gospel witness in life and All that leading to gospel witness in word that many would come to know Jesus. By God's grace and mercy, some of the unbelievers in your life right now, or that you have yet to meet in a month or two, will also be able to say in eternity, for we ourselves once were that way too. But he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his mercy. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for the clarity of your word that you show us the way we live, oh God, is a testimony. It's a gospel witness to all those around us. And we see, Lord, our former spiritual state and your work in salvation. And then that you show us that these things, Lord, as we live them out, can be excellent and profitable for people. And so, God, use us as humble instruments for your gospel, whether here or across the country or across the world. Lord, we ask that you would be 
displayed in our lives, in just the way that we live on an everyday, unscheduled, unprompted level. Give us, O God, much grace to live this life and to live so humbly with perfect courtesy toward all, showing goodness and loving kindness in our works because you've shown us goodness and loving kindness in the gospel through your son, Jesus. And so we give you much grace for that. In Jesus' name, amen.